God will at times use extreme measures to get our attention, that we might find refuge in Him. More on that coming up on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place God will dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand, singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, let this world know me by your love. There's an ongoing debate about sanctuary cities in our country. No matter where you are on the political spectrum, at the very least, it illustrates the need for a refuge. That need exists on varying levels, and the desire to feel and be safe is great. But it also begs the question, where can you go for refuge? We'll answer that question today on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. We'll find our answer in Hebrews 6, and it's there we'll discover that the place you can go for refuge is not a place, it's a person, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or completion, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptism, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth, which drinks in the rain, that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful to those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accomplish salvation, though we speak in this manner. Let me read that again. But beloved, those who are loved by God, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, although we are speaking in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by these two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge, to lay hold on the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor to our souls, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, 
where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You know, that's clear. We should just pray and go home, right? (laughs) Maybe not, but let's do pray. (laughs) Lord, we need you. We desperately need you, Lord, to speak to us, to teach us. You said your spirit is a teacher, will teach us. Help us to understand these verses we ask in Jesus' name. And all of God's people agreed by saying, amen. The anchor holds. This is a picture some of you would recognize probably from the island, the big island of Hawaii. About 40 minutes south of the old royal city of Kona is the city of refuge, a place of refuge. And in the old Hawaiian kapu days, the the law, uh, where no one could be close to the king, if his shadow fell on you, then you were guilty of breaking this law. You were subject to death. It was a death penalty, capital punishment. Unless you could run very fast and run all the way to the city of refuge. Mark Twain visited in the 1860s. In 1866, he wrote letters from Hawaii. This enclosure is vast. Stone walls were 20 feet thick at the base, 15 or 20 feet high, an oblong square 1,040 feet one way, and a fraction under 700 feet the other. So if the person successfully made it to the city of refuge after breaking this law, they were met by a priest, a kahuna and the priest would do a rite of purification and uh, give them forgiveness, and they would be restored, as they said, back to innocence. And they were set free to go back to their home. The earliest cities of refuge we know about were in the nation of Israel. There God commanded that the cities that the Levites had, six of them should be set aside as a place where people could run to, and it actually is where we get our laws on manslaughter. And so if you're chopping wood in the field and you're with your buddy and the head comes off your axe and hits him between the eyes and he dies, then it was your fault and you had to run to a city of refuge or the avenger of blood, his brother, his cousin, somebody. If they caught you before you got there, they would kill you. But if you got to the city of refuge, you were safe, the whole point. There you would have a trial by the elders of the city and if you were found not guilty, then you would stay there until the high priest, the current high priest died, and you would be free. All that is a picture of Jesus Christ. He is your refuge, sinner, of which we all are in this room, myself included. That Jesus is a safe place that we run to. And because he is the high priest, the great high priest we read last time, that has taken on the sin of the whole world, we're safe. We have refuge for eternity because our high priest will never die. That's the promise. Now, what's interesting about these set of verses that we just read, a very difficult set of verses, no matter what your theological position is, the first part of the chapter is very difficult and and sounds very condemning. And it is the strong warning. But I think you'll see as we go through it that it really was a warning to those Jews in the first century living who received this letter in Rome, who were going back to Judaism, who were wanting to embrace again the law, 
of letting an animal sacrifice do for them. The temple was still in place in 68 AD when this letter was written. So as a Christian, they were open to martyrdom, persecution by Nero. So some of them were going back and saying, well, you know, we don't get persecuted if we're Jews and it's the same God, same sacrifices. What's the big deal? Big deal. That's what this letter is about. You can't go back to the thing that was the old covenant because you can't put new wine in old wineskins. That there is a new covenant in place and it is based around what Jesus did, not what you did. And that's why when we take the communion and we're reminded of the cup, it says, as Jesus took it, he said, this is my blood of a new covenant. It's a new contract, a new agreement between God and humanity. He's the once and for all sacrifice. He's the high priest all rolled into one. He's your refuge. He's your anchor. And we'll see he's our promise and he's our forerunner. So we're going to go through this rather quickly, the first half of it. I'll try and give you the various theological positions so you can go and study it, be like a Berean, uh, go home and work it all out and then come back and tell me why I'm wrong. You won't be the first. A lot of people have been telling me that for years. But just remember, when we get to heaven, it's going to be a long time there together. And I'm going to say, I told you so about every other day. And it'll drive you crazy, okay? Now, let's look at it. Moving on, the first eight verses, patience, 9 through 16, and then promise, refuge, anchor, and forerunner, which will make a lot more sense when we get there in a moment verse 17 through 20. Let's jump in and see what the Holy Spirit might say to all of us. Verse 1, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, completion literally, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. All right, so the therefore is because he's been discussing, if you were with us in the last part of chapter 5, but they're the basic teaching, the ABCs of a relationship with God. Some hold that these are Old Testament only, but I believe it's both because it says principles of Christ. And the first one is repentance. Well, everybody, everywhere is commanded to repent, Old Testament and new. You have to humble yourself before God. Literally, the word means to turn around and say, God, I blew it, confess your sins, and say, I need your help. And God slowly changes us, gives us a will to serve him. That's the promise of the new covenant. He will cause us to walk in his ways. Which is the only reason people in this room are continuing to walk, myself included. Because he gives us grace, a gift that we don't deserve. And he keeps changing us along the way. And it does get easier to be obedient to understand it, to grasp it, to see how sin causes disasters in people's lives. But it doesn't mean that it's easier to do the right thing, and so you cry out for grace. This is Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. He's encouraging us in the role of grace that God freely gives. Now with part two of today's lesson and more on repentance and grace, here's Pastor Ed in Hebrews 6. You repent from dead works, thinking you can get to heaven by pleasing God, by giving to charity, by attending church so many days out of the year, by long King James 15th century prayers. No, 
It's by grace, a gift, by the charis of God, the gift of God that you are saved through faith. And it's not of yourself. It is a gift of God so that none can boast. But you have been saved for good works that were beforehand given to you. God prepared for you and I good things to do, but we don't do those good things to get into heaven. We do them now because he's changed us and we want to do it. It's the result of salvation. Wow, that was the gospel in three sentences. Might have been a little quick, but you get the idea. So dead works and faith to God. You can't just repent. You have to repent and turn to God. Have faith. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. It even started in the Old Testament back there. Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, believed God, trusted God, put his faith in God, and God reckoned it. God accounted to him rightness before God, righteousness. So Abraham got in. Somebody asked me the other day, well, how did the Old Testament saints get into heaven? Same way you get into heaven, by faith, by trust that Jesus Christ died in your place on a cross. And so accepting that and rejecting earning your way is what's going on here with faith towards God. List goes on, verse 2, the doctrine of baptisms. Notice it's plural, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment. Baptism, of course, in the Old Testament, oblations they're called, they would wash, Jews to this day, wash before a meal, they wash before going to the synagogue. There's a number of feast days that they go through a baptism, a washing for we, in the New Testament, are baptized in water. But Jesus also confirmed that we would be baptized in fire and the Holy Spirit. And so there are multiple baptisms in the Old Testament and at least two in the New Testament. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 3.12, Jesus said. Laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit is imparted, we know, from Acts 8.17 through the hands of someone praying for us. The gifts of the Spirit become ours. The refilling of the Spirit becomes ours. In the Old Testament, laying on of hands had to do with the sacrifice. You'd walk up with your lamb, sheep, goat, bullock, put your hand, lay your hand on the animal's head. The high priest would lay his hand on the animal and pray that your sins would be put on the animal who then died in your place. Looking forward to Jesus Christ. This is like the high-speed version of the Old Testament. Of the resurrection of the dead, of eternal judgment, all will be rewarded according to what they did with Jesus. The New Testament, Old Testament speaks of over and over again of judgment. The New Testament speaks of two judgment seats. The one in Revelation 20, verse 11 through 15, is called the great white throne judgment. And everyone who rejected Christ, whose name is not written in the book of life, will stand before him, and the books will be open. Everything you did, everything I did. See, I received Jesus because I wanted to avoid that. <laughs> Think about the embarrassment of that. That in itself should drive you to Jesus, okay? My mother's going to see that painful. But the other choice is the Bema judgment seat in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's the rewards judgment seat. It's where Jesus hands out the rewards for things that you and I have done. Well, I don't care about rewards, pastor. I just want to go to heaven. I'm with you. 
You can hold one of the doors and I'll hold the other door. We'll be gatekeepers in the house of the Lord. I'll be happy to cake out the garbage of heaven. I'll just be blessed to be there. But these are all things that he says, we're going to move on, verse 3. And this we will do if God permits. Lord willing, as James said in James 4, 16, if the Lord wills, we should say it this way, not we're going to do something, but if God wills it, he's just being humble. Verse 4, for it is impossible. Here we go. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, notice the word enlightened, who have tasted, notice the word tasted, the heavenly gift, and have become partakers, notice the word partaker of the Holy Spirit. So, once we were enlightened, the knowledge of the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, that we understand that he died for us, understanding the good news, the gospel, is not the equivalent of being saved, of regeneration. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Same is true about the word tasted of the heavenly gift. The NIV says shared in the heavenly gift. Living Bible says experienced the heavenly gift. Tasting may either be momentarily or continuing. Jesus tasted of death for every man. Hebrews 2.9 said. We looked at it a while back. But it was either, for him it was momentarily. It wasn't continually. It wasn't permanent. So what am I saying? I'm saying that men, women, theologians, pastors have been arguing about these verses, four, five, and six, for mm, 400 years, <laughs> maybe longer. And I, I'm sure we won't settle it today, but I'm going to give you the four most common theological positions on what these verses are saying. The church I grew up in had what's called an Armenian view. I was taught that true believers lose their salvation every time they backslide and you get resaved again. Scripture doesn't say that you get born again, again, and again, and again, but that's what I was taught. I was taught that I'm walking down the street and I've just left church and I'm all doing good, you know, confessed my sins, repented, doing fine, and I have a bad thought it comes into my mind. I capture it, I think about it. And as I'm walking down the street thinking about it, a truck runs the corner, has a blowout, truck jumps the curb, crushes me against the wall, and I go to hell. <laughs> Isn't that hopeful? I grew up under that terror, but it still didn't keep me. <laughs> I didn't believe it. I just didn't believe it. That can't be God. If that's God, I don't want any part of him. Well, it's not God. That's not the way he works. The Bible says otherwise. So that's the Armenian belief. Believers lose their salvation daily every time they sin. Calvinists, on the other hand, believe that these people are not actually saved. And there's a whole host of them that you can refer to. That, in fact, these people are enlightened, they've tasted, and they're partakers, but that's not the equivalent of salvation. They had an experience, but it didn't last. How can that be? I have a good friend. 25 years ago, he went to a harvest crusade, walked down in the front, and said a sinner's prayer, received a Bible. I talked with him. He said he felt God. He was excited about it. Six weeks later, that was it. He was done. He never went to church again except to a couple of funerals here that he's been to. He's a kind of a well-known musician. 
And he's just ignoring the truth that he has. So what do I do? Do I write him off? No, I pray for him all the time. He's lost as a rock and he needs Jesus. It's not that God quit working on him, it's that he's going, I'm not listening, that thing. Now, I'm sure all of us in this room know people like that. Maybe you're the person that's here this morning. Bad morning to come, goodness gracious. So these people are not actually saved. Second most common view of these verses. Third most common view that Jesus was not their Lord. They didn't believe in him as Lord. Quote, true Christians can deny the faith and yet remain saved, although they lose their rewards in heaven. I can't disprove that, but it does seem to beg the bigger question, why all this discussion here? But you may hold that position and be very biblical. Fourth most popular one is the hypothetical view that this isn't really happening. The author is only suggesting something that has not happened to use it as a warning against these people. And again, I do not know which one is the most correct. I know that there's problems with all four of those, and there's probably another 10 positions besides those. For me, they weren't saved. They're like my buddy who I'm still waiting, who I'm still sharing with every time I see him because God's not through with them, and I'm believing God's going to answer my prayers in his life. Those of you that have children that are away from the Lord, spouses, maybe parents or grandparents, grandchildren, you keep praying. Verse 5, they've tasted of the good word, same thing, the good word of God, the Bible, and the powers of the age to come. They tasted both of those things. It was only momentarily again. Verse 6, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance is impossible, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So, a lot of important concepts here, but quickly, faith holds you if you fall away. The word does, simply means unfaithfulness. Jesus fell down in the garden, same word. Okay, so it's not necessarily an object of hardened sinners refusing. If one falls, it doesn't mean they can't repent. Thief on the cross, last minute. He's our hope, too, to see him next to Jesus. Did everything wrong. Really poor church attendance. <laughs> Shortest prayer. Shortest sinner's prayer I've ever heard. I get criticized for doing a short sinner's prayer. His was, remember me, Lord, when you get to your kingdom. He said, you're in. Here, read this pamphlet. I'm not going to church. He's not going to Sunday school. He's not even moving. He's just going to die right where he is. But the grace of God, the gift of God, is all we all have to hope in, that God would take our stumbling, falling, halting actions and thoughts and cleanse them by the blood of the Lamb. But that's what he says he does. That's the good news. So, again, the problem is not God's mercy. The problem is we harden our heart. We keep pushing God away. But sometimes things draw us back, you know? That little C word. I'm sorry, sir, you have cancer. That'll get your attention. I'm sorry, sir, you are going to lose your liver. God has all kinds of ways to get my attention, and yours too. Perhaps God has gotten your attention. Though it may not seem like it, 
It's mercy and proof he loves you and wants to save you. You need only to call on him like the thief on the cross did. We're going and growing through Hebrews right now on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. If you missed a portion of today's study, simply go online to thepackinghouse.org and you'll find our programs are archived there for you. We can also send you a CD copy if that's preferred. Here's where to reach us, 844-77-GRACE. Again, that's 844-77-GRACE. Our prayer is that you'll grow in grace through this study of Hebrews. And if a question comes to mind, or you're in need of prayer, or would just like to express something that's on your heart, please do email us at packinghouseradio at aol.com. Again, packinghouseradio at aol.com. Today, we'd like to offer you an inspirational book from Elizabeth Elliot called Through Gates of Splendor. This classic bestseller recalls the story of five missionaries who dared to share the good news with a Stone Age tribe deep in the jungles of Ecuador. And while they were martyred for their faith in Jesus, their story lives on, inspiring thousands to follow in their courageous footsteps. Through Gates of Splendor, our featured resource is available for a gift of any amount to grow in grace. You can give us a call at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. This has been Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray, a daily presentation of the Packing House Christian Fellowship. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick meal and the crippled stand singing Son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, Let this world know me by your.